Welcome back to Staying Ahead of the Curve, Crypto Regulation and Competitiveness. We just heard from a panel of experts talking about stablecoin regulation. And now we're going to move on to talking about crypto regulatory uncertainty more generally and U.S. competitiveness. While much of the world advances regulation for crypto asset markets, the United States has yet to provide a stable and practical framework for U.S. crypto policy. The Securities and Exchange Commission, specifically its chairman, often claims that the law is perfectly clear. But as Axios crypto reporter Brady Dale wrote last week after a notable SEC loss in court, when judges disagree, it bolsters the industry argument that the law needs an update. Updating the law is exactly what has happened in a number of jurisdictions, including the EU, the UK, Dubai, Switzerland, Japan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. There's reason to believe that the clarity provided by those updates may lure businesses away from uncertain U.S. regulation. Some crypto com companies have been vocal about looking abroad, and lawyers report that U.S. industry participants are actively considering moving to new jurisdictions. But 64% of Fortune 500 executives in a recent survey say that investing in crypto and blockchain is important for staying ahead of their competition. Does unclear regulation of crypto assets threaten the United States' position as a financial leader? Is delay in enacting a fit-for-purpose regulatory regime harming U.S. entrepreneurs, developers, and users? Our next panel, Crypto Regulatory Uncertainty and U.S. Competitiveness, competitiveness will tackle these questions. We're fortunate to have with us as moderator George Leonardo, the founder of Cap Hill Crypto, a media and advisory venture focused on providing high-quality, nonpartisan crypto policy content. If you aren't getting Cap Hill Crypto's weekly newsletter, you really should be. George? Thank you so much, Jen. Really appreciate that very uh, kind introduction. Um, and thanks so much for putting this rock star panel together. Excited to be with you all today, um, getting to some of the nitty-gritty as to the state of uh, U.S. crypto policy, where there's clarity, um, where there's not clarity, and how that's impacting uh, entrepreneurs, builders in the space, um, and of course, where we stack up compared to uh, international jurisdictions. Um, so we'll start briefly with uh, introductions. I'll ask some questions, um, and we will have time at the end for audience questions. Um, so folks who are tuning in online, you can submit your questions uh, throughout the panel as they come to you. Um, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, use the hashtag CatoEcon, um, and we'll get those questions. But you can also submit them um, on the Cato website or on YouTube. Um, so with that, let's get to uh, introductions. Uh, to my left, we have G. Kim of the Crypto Council for Innovation, fellow Boston College alum. I might add, uh, G., would you mind uh, giving some more background on yourself and what you're up to at the Crypto Council for Innovation? Great. Uh, it's great to be here. It's an honor and privilege to be on this panel with such esteemed panelists and you, George. Uh, G. Kim, General Counsel and Head of Global Policy for Crypto Council for Innovation. Uh, just very briefly, by way of background, uh, CCI is a global alliance of industry leaders in the crypto and uh, Web3 ecosystem. And we pride ourselves in working constructively uh, and positively with regulators and policymakers around the world. We use an evidence-based uh, approach uh, to inform and help shape uh, thoughtful regulation in all jurisdictions. Um, I won't hog the mic in my introduction, but you know, just very briefly, I think this topic is extremely important. Um, as I'll share more as we you know, go on, um, unfortunately, I do think the U.S. is lagging behind when it comes to thoughtful regulatory frameworks. It pains me to say so as a proud American. With that said, I'm an eternal optimist. I think we've had some very positive recent momentum uh, in the House Agricultural Committee and House Financial Services Committees, uh, and you know, I, I'm hopeful that that will keep on moving on. So I think uh, there's still hope uh, for U.S. to keep on leading uh, when it comes to such transformative potential asset 
class individual assets. Awesome, thank you, G. Um, next we have Dan Davis, uh, an attorney and partner at uh, the law firm Catton. Uh, Dan, would you mind giving some more background? Yeah, so again, thanks to Cato for the introduction and the, the opportunity to, to be here today. Uh, I'm based in DC, I'm, I'm co-chair of Catton's uh, financial markets and regulation practice. Uh, from 2017 to 2021, I was the general counsel of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, one of the federal regulators that's definitely in play in any discussion uh, related to crypto, uh, and you know saw, saw firsthand uh, the way the regulators are, are trying to address or not trying to address uh, crypto-related issues. Uh, also of note for this panel, I, I, I clerked on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, I've successfully sued the SEC in the D.C. Circuit, uh, and so it's, I've been paying close attention to cases like the, like the Grayscale case that came out a couple weeks ago. So, pleasure to be here. Look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Dan. Um, next we have Kathy Kreninger from uh, Salidas Labs, VP of Regulatory Affairs. Kathy, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you to Cato and to the panel. It's fantastic to be here today and important topics to talk about and have the time, frankly, to get a little deeper into them. So I'm Kathy Craninger. I'm the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Solidus Labs. We are a market surveillance and risk monitoring software service in the crypto space. We are crypto native. We support CFI and DeFi exchanges, broker dealers, market makers, and we also support regulators uh, across the globe. And the regulatory certainty issue that obviously is plaguing us here in the United States that we'll talk quite a bit about uh, is not the issue overseas in a lot of jurisdictions. So where we see our business and our clients and active participation in building market integrity into these markets across the globe, uh, it's unfortunately in other locations. And so definitely something that we want to keep pursuing as a policy interest here as, as Americans. Um, and then in terms of other uh, reasons why I'm on this stage, I spent my career working for the U.S. government in national security space and in financial services. I was a financial regulator. I was the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kathy. Um, and Rashawn Colbert of DYDX. Thanks so much, man, for the intro and Cato for hosting this. Um, hello to everyone here, everyone online. Um, my name is Rashawn Colbert. I'm head of policy at DYDX Trading. DYDX <coughs> Trading supports and develops the protocol DYDX, which is a hybrid decentralized trading protocol for the trading of perpetuals, um, perpetual future contracts, or so just like regular future contracts, but um, they don't have an expiration date. And so within the world of crypto, trading by volume, this is actually the most popular product, Bitcoin perpetuals in particular, by a significant margin. And we're one of the main places where people do that in a decentralized manner. So, you know, right now we actually don't serve American customers because everything is a little bit complicated, which is the whole point of this discussion we're having today. There's a lot we need to do, a lot to solve, and we're really focused on the long term. How do we support builders? building. You know, we are an American company. We want to be American. We want to serve folks here. And so I'm eager to, to dive into this conversation with this great group. And um, hopefully we can solve, solve all of our problems here today. <laughs> there we go. Um, well, thanks, guys. Um, so to start off with the questions, you know, panel title, crypto regulatory uncertainty. I'd really like to drill down on that a little bit more. We hear that buzzword a lot, um, lack of regulatory clarity. But I'm curious, 
you know, where, what are some specific examples of where the law is unclear and how specifically is it impacting your business, the clients you advise, your members? Um, and really what I'm trying to do here is, is just get a more concrete picture of, of what regulatory uncertainty actually means for the folks on the ground. G, would you like to start? I'm happy to. I think this is a great starting point. Uh, I think the first and perhaps obvious um, issue that comes to mind is whether and when a digital asset is a security. Um, you know, we're, we sort of have with this current administration with SEC, uh, the uh, misconception that every digital asset is a security uh, or that every digital asset uh, traded on secondary markets are investment contracts. Uh, and we've seen in recent court decisions, including in Ripple, that that's just not accurate. And I think this is a real um, concern and problem for the industry because there's often a misconception that uh, the crypto industry does not want clear rules of the road. It's actually the very opposite. I think builders, founders, entrepreneurs, developers, they want clear guidance because they want to bring to market safe and secure products that the customers want. But I think you know, we're seeing that um, there's no certainty, there's a lot of ambiguity when it comes to these digital asset tokens. And my perspective is that the vast majority of digital assets are actually commodities. You don't have the same information asymmetry risks or concerns that you may have with securities, which are regulated very differently. Um, so I think for exchanges and companies that are looking to either list these tokens or assets or even build off of this, it creates a lot of uncertainty as to how to build and how to do so. And we're seeing, and we'll get more into it in this panel, that U.S.-based companies are starting to go more offshore as a result of this lack of clarity. We're seeing the U.K., the EU, and MECA, as well as in APAC and Singapore, Hong Kong, and elsewhere, really develop frameworks and embrace um, this transformative and positive asset class of technology. Uh, I'll wrap things up uh, by saying that my colleague and CEO, Sheila Warren of CCI, often tells this cautionary tale, uh, which may be indicative here. Uh, the U.S. invented semiconductor manufacturing back in the 1960s. It led in the development for a very long time, the strategic planning, the development, and so forth. Along the way, due to very strategic missteps, the U.S. seeded that leadership. And now we've seen in the White House, just this past year, trying to get those manufacturing jobs and development back here in the U.S. I see crypto and digital assets as, as a similar positive transformative potential in asset class that we need to keep here in the United States. And the regulatory clarity or lack of clarity that we have in the U.S. right now is really um, impeding the innovation and growth. Thanks. Yeah, so to build off what, uh, what G was talking about, I think that really is kind of the key gateway issue. When, you, when you're looking at a digital asset or particular types of transactions in digital assets, which U.S. regulatory bucket does it fit into? And that is a key gateway question because that tells you what your, uh, who, who your regulator is, what registration obligations you may have, what you know, substantive obligations you may have. So that question is really a key gateway question. And, it, and it's a complicated question. Uh, and it's one that I, I, I deal with almost every day uh, in my practice. Uh, and it's one where there's a lot of lack of clarity. As, as G was already talking about, I mean, the current chairman of the SEC has basically asserted just about every digital asset on the face of this planet is a security, and you've already got courts who disagree with that. Um, the only thing that we seem to have absolute certainty of in, in, in the U.S. is that Bitcoin is not a security. Well, what happens with Bitcoin, right? That, that level of certainty within Bitcoin is helpful, right, because Bitcoin has regulated uh, futures products that are, that are regulated and addressed by the CFTC, my former agency. Uh, and you have, you know, other products that are, that are SEC regulated. Uh, I think there are going to be more of them now, now that Grayscale has prevailed in the D.C. Circuit. You know, that product and uh, that, that digital asset and other products based upon that digital asset, you're seeing that asset really grow and, and having some opportunity for the market to say whether they like particular variations of that product or not. You don't have that same level of clarity with other products, uh, and, it's, and it's very difficult to deal with. 
Um, I was, uh, my, my firm had a, had a symposium on crypto in London uh, earlier this year, and I was on a, on a regulatory panel. And it was interesting to hear my colleagues um, who, who practice in the EU and the UK, uh, all they were talking about was uh, legislation and what was happening with the legislation and how it was being implemented and what the legislation meant and how, you know, what, what, what are the key questions that were coming out of the legislation. Uh, it turned to my turn on the panel, uh, and all I talked about was enforcement actions. Uh, here's, here's what the regulators are doing. You know, here's what the complaint says. Here's what the briefing says. Here's what the decision says. And that is a, that is a much foggier lens to have when you're trying to give advice to clients. Um, you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm giving advice to clients about the security versus commodity distinction, I, I give disclaimers left and right. And I say, first of all, you know, the chairman of the SEC thinks that everything that we're talking about here today is securities activity that's subject to the securities laws. And so you're taking a chance whenever you decide to dip your toe in there. Now, I think that that's overbroad and it's incorrect. And I think cases like the Ripple decision uh, show why that that's incorrect. And I think the courts will sort it out eventually. Uh, but eventually is a long time. Um, another type of question that I get um, because of my CFTC background is the difference between a swap and a security-based swap. Um, that can be relevant based on crypto, but it's, it's, it's a larger question. Um, security versus a swap versus security-based swap is an easier question for me to answer. Why is that? Well, when Dodd-Frank was passed, uh, Congress told the SEC and CFTC to get together and come up with definitions and examples of what constitutes a swap and what constitutes a security-based swap. Uh, and there was a rulemaking that was finished about uh, 10 years ago. And it, it's a long rulemaking. It takes up a couple hundred pages in the Federal Register. But what happened? You know, everybody who had familiarity with the swap market put in comment letters and said, here are the key products, here are where we think are the key distinctions, here are where we think, you know, some of the dividing lines would be. And the CFTC and the SEC sat down and in a, in a very lengthy rulemaking, to be sure, but, but a rulemaking addressed the large majority of those questions. So when I get a, a, a swap versus security-based swap question, a lot of the times I'm able to give a pretty confident answer based on that rulemaking, because that was a pretty thorough uh, rulemaking. And if, if there comes time, there's always edge cases. Uh, and when there's edge cases, we can go to the relevant agencies and get their, and get their views on that. But as, that is a much more nuanced, uh, and I'm much more confident in my advice in that area, because that's an area where the agencies, pursuant to congressional directive, sat down and gave a pretty detailed explanation for why they think particular products are on one side or the other. And, and anything like that in this space would be welcome because then I would have, uh, you know, my, my lenses would be a little less foggy and I'd be able to tell my clients with a bit more confidence, yes, I'm, I'm confident that you're sitting on the security side of the line or you're sitting on the non-security of the line. And that's something that, you know, we, we really need in the United States. Now, I'd, I'd certainly pick that up since we started talking about <clears throat> what, what, what is the lack of clarity in the United States and what is the issue it really gets to those nuts and bolts dynamics. I've, I certainly have been now a, a part of this industry a little more than two years, but the what is a security, what is a commodity conversation really leads exactly to you know, what was just being discussed on the details of 
how you then bring that product to market. Who can access that product? How do they access that product? What disclosures you have to provide? And, and all of those types of things that come with it. There have been a couple of very excellent hearings um, where some of the major centralized players have been talking about the challenges that they faced. Coinbase, Robinhood, going to the SEC, uh, applying to actually offer securities, um, and they, they simply cannot even register, again, based on those very detailed uh, questions that don't quite address the differences in this market and in their business structure, which, again, is permitted and allowed under other aspects of U.S. law. So you do have some conflicts, dynamics over which regulator has um, you know, primacy over that product, and again, exactly how it's accessed. And so from, <clears throat> you know, from the consumer standpoint, too, that's a huge issue. This market's history is about access. It is about individuals across the globe being able to interact with each other in a decentralized way. So if we're having these challenges even around centralized products and, and their nature and exactly how to make them available, you know, how do you take that to the next level and continue to innovate? And I'll say from a macro standpoint, uh, from where I've worked in the U.S. government, my concern is about our national security and competitiveness issues, which is also in the title of this panel, around the fact that we really were the leaders in setting the international financial infrastructure. And that has created the regime across the world that enables governments to go after illicit actors and, and nation states that are engaging in terrorism and organized crime and, and all of the dynamics that you know, we want to keep out of the financial system so that we can have that free flow of commerce and, and economic uh, security across the globe. And so without that U.S. leadership and in infrastructure, without taking advantage of all of the really beneficial aspects of blockchain, whether it's inefficiency or um, in you know, really addressing some cross-border issues that continue to plague payment systems, the world is going to leave us behind. They're going to build this infrastructure themselves, <clears throat> and then the U.S. leadership role is absent. The U.S. national security interests and, frankly, the democratic values that at least we build in to the things that we are promoting across the globe, you know, that, that is diminished. That voice is diminished, uh, particularly when you look at some of the voices that uh, will play in this space and have. I think the other thing that's interesting as we think about what does regulatory clarity look like and where can the U.S. lead, it is in this permission versus permissionless arena. It is in this centralized versus decentralized arena because the world hasn't fully grappled with that. A lot of the regimes are, um, and I know we'll get into them too, are taking baby steps towards that. But, but how we get to truly decentralized finance is something that has not been grappled with by any of the regulatory regimes across the globe. And there is an opportunity still uh, for the U.S. To, to really help develop what that looks like. I think, you know, my colleagues here on the panel articulated extremely well what the nature of the problems we're seeing, where the lack of clarity is in the regulatory regime in the United States. Um, and I think you know, a problem that we're seeing at DYDX is kind of between these issues. You know, because there's lack of clarity on the definition standpoint and other places, who the regulator is, what the jurisdiction is, it's hard to introduce new products, which is exactly what Kathy was getting at as well. And so, you know, 
DYDX is currently on version three of the protocol. We have in the past had something that was available to US customers, but when we changed it, there wasn't a clear pathway to become a regulated entity in the United States. And we're very focused on, um, on operating within the rules, within the law, in places where we can provide you know, responsible solutions to people who are seeking these types of products. We're coming out with a version four of the protocol at the end of this month into next month. I think we're really focused on cutting edge technology. This is gonna be a solution that is something that hasn't been done before. I mentioned earlier that we're a hybrid exchange and we kind of operate some pieces of the protocol off-chain. We have an off-chain matching engine and order book which allows us to have much greater throughput than other decentralized solutions. We can help people do things faster in a more professional way. We're gonna be putting that all on-chain Everything will be auditable. We're going to release the code. It'll be open source. So anybody can see what's going on, or people can take the code and use it as they like as well. We're also, you know, helping. We're, we're, we're making solutions so that we can try and be compliant as possible. Um, but yeah, this isn't going to be available to U.S. customers. I think the United States is still the best place to build a company, and it is still a place where a lot of the cutting-edge developers on this technology are based. You know, we have an office in New York. Across the street is the Uniswap office. You know, A16Z is nearby. And there's a lot of people working on this type of stuff here. And they want to be here. So obviously, we want to serve customers here. And hopefully, we'll be able to. But, you know, we will eventually lose out. And obviously, if you can't serve your customers, you know, one of the things about making startups is, yeah, be where your customers are. Understand them very well. Serve them. So... If none of our customers are here over a long period of time, you know, what does that lead to? Awesome, thanks. I think that's really helpful. Sounds like everyone's in agreement. There is uh, uncertainty, uh, particularly around this foundational issue of drawing the jurisdictional lines and defining um, which assets are securities or commodities. Um, the good news is Congress has taken a stab at addressing this um, through a few different proposals, um, most significantly and, and recently, House Financial Services and House Act Committee passed a bill. Um, with some bipartisan support, Financial Innovation and Technology for the 21st Century Act, we call it the FIT Act, market structure, whatever is easiest for folks. Um, but it tries to get at um, that jurisdictional question, largely focusing on how decentralized an asset is or the network on which it operates. I'd love to get your all's thoughts on, um, is this the right approach, and what's kind of the best way to have that clarity um, that you're looking for? Um, yeah, so just to directly answer your question, I think this is the right approach, and I would start off, and I mentioned this at the outset, but I think this is really a remarkable step for the industry, uh, the fact that we have this comprehensive, uh, thorough, thoughtful, you know, market structure bill that passed out of, uh, you know, both uh, the House Ag and the HFSE committees. Um, I think, you know, the main policy consideration that we have to keep in mind is our industry needs regulatory clarity. You know, who has authority to regulate securities or commodities and where does it, where do the justice fit into all that? And this bill is a step forward, a big step forward in connection with that. It, it makes clear that for digital asset commodities, the CFTC, CFTC will have jurisdiction, and there are a bunch of requirements, examination processes in connection with that. And that's important because from what we talked about, let's say finance and consumer protection perspective, the question is who will examine you know, different intermediaries and different participants in the market um, system you know, if you're not sure like where you fit into the, the system. It also carves out ancillary activities, exemptions for um, activities that are meant to build off of the blockchain, that are not meant to be caught up um, you know, by SEC or CFTC registration, and it carves them out. And it also you know, digs into sort of the definition of decentralized, um, you know, what is decentralized. And you know, the reality is that there are instances with digital assets where it's sort of an evolutionary pathway. You, know, you may start off um, 
with more of a connection to a centralized system, potentially, hypothetically. But eventually, if the digital asset evolution goes the way it's meant to, you'll be decentralized. And it allows different uh, participants to prove your decentralized um, ability and does give SC an opportunity to rebut that process. So along with the way of saying that this market structure bill is not only very positive, it's very well thought out. I've been in crypto for several years now. I find it to be a very complicated, nuanced um, area of law and topic, uh, generally speaking. And the fact that we have this bill uh, that, you know, hopefully will go to the House floor vote, I think is a very positive step in the right direction. Awesome. Yeah, so I, uh, I testified before the House Act Committee earlier this year, and one of the things I said is, you know, don't, don't, don't have the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, you know, we, we need regulation. We need legislation. And nobody is going to think that any regu- uh, le- legislation that's passed is perfect. Um, but I think that this legislation and, and what's proposed in the Loomis-Gillibrand bill have a lot of good things to say for it. Um, you know, as, as I alluded to in my earlier answer, key distinction for me and a key thing that legislation can advance is clarifying these lines between the, the security-non-security distinction. Uh, I think that's the most bang you can get for your buck in a particular legislation. I think this bill has a lot of good things to say for it. I mean, it reminds me of... Uh, the way uh, Congress dealt with security futures products. Uh, my, my story is that you know digital assets is the is the latest chapter in an ongoing conversation between the SEC and the CFTC about their respective um, spheres of jurisdiction. And it's been different products over the years. You know, uh, 20 years ago it was security futures, right? If you're a if you're a future based off of a broad-based index, the you know the S&P 500, for example, you're subject to CFTC jurisdiction. If you're a future based on a single security, well, then you're subject to both SEC and CFTC jurisdiction. Well, and then if you're narrow-based, somewhere in between, narrow-based is CFTC and SEC joint jurisdiction. Well, how in the world are you going to tell the difference between a narrow-based index and a broad-based index? Well, CFTC and SEC got together and came up with some proposed numerical benchmarks, and Congress bought into that and incorporated that into the law. And so, you know, the, you know, like I was talking about before, when I'm trying to figure out if something's a swap or a security-based swap, if I'm trying to figure out that something's a security future or just a regular future, and I'm looking at that numerical test, you know, there's some edge cases where you're, you're fighting over whether something fits a particular box or not. But the, the, the range of the debate that has to take place in, and, and, the, and the amount of effort that needs to take place to figure out whether something is a security future or not is significantly reduced. And I think of that example when I look at the type of provisions that we're seeing in these bills. You know, certain things, to, certain type of ancillary assets in, in the loomis Brown bill, if there are certain attributes of the digital asset transaction that kind of go back to the issuer or go back to the company, well, you know, pretty good odds that, that, that that's a security, right? But if it, there are other attributes of it, if it's decentralized, you know, like in the, some of the numerical tests in, you know, in the, in the, in the McHenry-Thompson bill, then, yeah. Then it's then then it's out of scope for securities, and you're you're off to your regulator, and you don't have to worry about the gateway any question anymore. And so I think those are the things that I, I like the most about these bills. It really, you know, it really advances that ball and would help crystallize that conversation about which, you know, which regulator you're with. And I'd say too, I, I spent half my career on the Hill and half my career in the executive branch um, before I joined the private sector. So. It is an amazing feat to bring together two committees of jurisdiction. 
just as it's an amazing feat to bring together two agencies that have different uh, but overlapping jurisdiction. And so the fact that the, the FIT bill really did bring together House Ag and House Financial Services, and they tried to address this recognizing that the industry is facing a, a pretty big challenge. Again, not, not unprecedented, it is, was just outlined, but the difference is in the past, you've had two agencies that both participated in that process and lent their expertise to it. Um, that is, unfortunately, not the situation we have today uh, with the SEC's position on what uh, crypto assets are and, and saying they're all securities. But nonetheless, we have a Congress um, with bipartisan interest in moving something forward, bicameral interest in furthering the understanding of really all the members of Congress getting engaged in this topic. So say Rashan was there more, more recently than I was, but it's still, um, I think, something that the, the staff and, and the members who have tackled this really should be uh, recognized for. And it, it's not perfect, as was just said either. Um, I, these, these are really difficult issues to get to the bottom of, particularly when you don't have agencies giving you technical assistance on a lot of the details. Uh, it's weedy, um, so so I, I I try not to throw uh, throw stones from uh, from the gallery here on on the nuts and bolts of things, but I think the the other thing that um, I wanted to touch on, in addition to the the process here being, uh, I think what is to foreigners appears interesting because it's the, to them it feels so drawn out, um, but but it really actually has been. Uh, fairly methodical uh, for the committees of jurisdiction that are engaging in the House and the individual senators, or at least Senate Ag, that are engaging in the Senate, um, the opportunity to move something forward is there. Uh, it's, it's likely going to be less comprehensive than the bills that have been drafted, uh, but any, anything, frankly, is, is progress for this industry and is, is uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the parts of your question was, you know, what sort of problems that you see with this solve right away. And it would solve many. For DYDX in particular, it wouldn't magically allow us to start doing everything we want to do, but that's okay. This is a long process. And the bill itself um, was clearly drafted with expertise. It clearly took a lot of time and effort bringing people together from outside, from inside, both parties, Obviously, a major recognition to the chairman and to their lead staffers who worked on this for years. Um, it's a good bill, and I think it's a good good step forward. And and they've also been very good with their process. So I, I've been very um, thoughtful and, and thankful for that. You know, they've sought um, feedback from folks outside like me, um, from all over Capitol Hill, et cetera. I think they've done a, a good job. They also did, um, had good contemplation of DeFi within the bill, um, <clears throat> and, and so I'm, I'm happy with where the bill is. I think there's still um, a long way to go. I'm not sure that this piece of legislation, the Financial Innovation and Technology for the 21st Century Act, is going to um, become law as it stands. You know, there's a long road in the Senate. We don't know what's going to happen for the moment, and as Kathy mentioned, the Ag Committee is working a bit, but it's going to take multiple folks kind of putting their um, their fingerprint on this for it to go forward. And I think they have a few other issues within crypto that they'd like to tackle first. So um, I'm really happy with what the progress has been made thus far and, and eager to keep working with them to 
hopefully craft a bill that will be able to move forward. But I am eager to see if this gets um, a House vote, um, floor vote this, this fall, as um, I think it will and I think it could pass. So we'll see. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, another big part of uh, the McHenry-Thompson Bill, the FIT Act, um, is the idea of con consumer protections, right? Um, you hear that a lot. We need to promote innovation but protect consumers. Um, and I think one way this bill tries to do that is it provides tailored disclosures so folks have access to information most relevant um, to digital assets. Um, curious what you guys think about that piece of the bill and just more generally, what is important to, to have disclosed? What information is most important with these assets? Um, and how are those requirements different from what's required under existing security laws? In other words, like why are those not a good fit? Um, maybe we can start there. Sure. Um, so to directly answer your question, I think, yes, this bill you know, does you know, properly address some of the disclosure requirements. So I think it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about digital assets and crypto, it's very different than traditional financial assets. Uh, you know, the information that uh, a customer investor may want is going to look different than what you may want from a stock or a bond, and that's why my, my belief is that digital assets are not securities. Um, I think you know, it, the question about disclosure sort of depends on whether we're talking about, let's say, an exchange or a token issuer. And I think just sort of like draw on what is in existence, um, you know, I think the questions that I would care about if I were a customer investor are, um, what are the security you know, uh, measures, protections, and potential risks, right? Because this is built off of the blockchain, essentially, the protocol. Um, so have there been code audits, for example? What, the, what do the cybersecurity measures look like? And you do see this, uh, not, I know that we're, talking, we're here to talk about the federal level, but just to draw into the states a little bit, depending on how you're regulated at the state level, you know, there are requirements around this. So if you're an exchange that's regulated by, let's say, the New York DFS or another state, you have to provide disclosures about capital reserve requirements, governance requirements, cybersecurities, what audits examinations you've had. As I mentioned earlier um, in the beginning part, um, I think that's why it's so important that this bill addresses the question of who will have jurisdiction and authority over what type of intermediary or what type of participant in this market. Because from there, you have a better sense of what disclosures to provide. If, if, if a digital asset happens to be a security, then I think the disclosure regime will look different because the whole purpose of the securities laws in our country is to provide the investor information that they do not have readily available that should come from a centralized management you know, team, let's say, right? And to help with uh, price formation, to provide for price discovery, and so forth. If that's not the case when it comes to digital assets, it's going to look different depending on the regime. Um, so really, I think um, you know, the disclosures are an important piece to all of this to you know, help consumer protection, stamp out illicit finance. But a lot of it comes down to the security measures, because that's what the customers are going to want to care about. Um, the risk assessments, the examinations that have taken place, the audits, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at its core, digital assets is really just a subset of cybersecurity, right? And so, you know, the, the key questions related to concerns that consumers have with respect to digital assets, I think, are very much similar to what you would have in any type of cybersecurity environment, right? You know, risk of hacks, risks of, you know, um, outside hacks, inside hacks, um, you know, the ability to manipulate the code. Uh, those, things, those things are all central and they're very important to a disclosure regime, even more than, you know, other, other types of asset classes. The, the other thing I think about when I think about, you know, the disclosure regime, uh, like G alluded to, is kind of, you know, knowing who your regulator is. Um, you know, uh, people on the Hill say, and, and rightly so, that, you know, we don't want another, you know, FTX to happen. We don't want another, you know, Terra Luna to happen. We don't want, you know, those types of, you know, those types of harms to happen to the consumers. And I think it's important to remember, you know, one of the, one of the very small parts of the, one of the very few parts of the FTX ecosystem that wasn't impacted by the FTX fallout was the part of FTX that was regulated by the CFTC. 
um, because that part was under a regulated umbrella. It had to have the disclosures because it was under CFTC. It had to have customer protections. It had to protect customer funds. It had to account to the regulator for, you know, what it was doing with customer money. And it couldn't be, as is alleged to have been done, you know, shifted around the various parts of the FTX ecosystem, right? So I think, I think the disclosure is important, um, but you, you get the disclosure and you get the benefits when an entity is within, you know, an understood and regulated system, because every regulator you talk to uh, will say, look, we want to make sure customers understand what they're getting into, understand what the risks are, and are making informed choices. And if you have a regulator that can be behind that, uh, that is also, you know, checking out like, like NYDFS does right now, that can give customers that additional comfort uh, you know, that they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to lose all their savings. Yes. Uh, it's definitely a, a trust but ver verified dynamic to the regulatory regime that we're used to. Again, disclosures are, are paramount. It's a pillar of uh, certainly securities law and consumer protection that the information be available to investors to, to make, you know, the decisions based on their own risk tolerance and appetite. Uh, fraud being an Entirely different uh, element and issue here, but but that regulatory oversight and supervision is a good check against fraud, absolutely. And so that's that's an important facet to talk about here too. I think uh, interesting some research that was recently done because I, I tend to agree with the uh, assertion that a technical understanding of the protocol of of the asset, of the cybersecurity dimensions and, and uh, ability to withstand hacks uh, or otherwise, um, you know, again, cyber uh, in incursions is an important facet of investing in this space. Uh, but there is some research done on what, what are investors actually looking for when they're engaging in this space that Chris Brummer and some others recently uh, issued that, that folks in the room and on uh, on video may be familiar with. But it was interesting to me to see that a lot of the things that you traditionally would want to know about investments are the same things that crypto investors wanted to know about uh, with respect to, obviously, the, the financials, uh, the management team to the extent that it's a centralized uh, dynamic, but certainly the protocol, who, who were uh, the developers at the beginning of, of the protocol. So any of those types of dynamics that are fairly traditional and, of course, the risks. I think the other thing that's interesting in this space as you think about disclosures and you think about who the investors are, a lot of people are uh, admittedly learning by doing in the crypto space and excited by that and wanting to participate in that. And so it's something to think about, too, as we look at disclosures and we look at the regulatory regime that makes the most sense, precluding those people from accessing these products, particularly in the United States, is not a panacea. They're going to be accessing these products anywhere they are offered. And so wouldn't it be better to have them offered in the United States to consumers with the protections of our laws and with the right regulatory regime? Yeah, obviously, disclosures are paramount. And I think the the bill we're talking about, you know, <clears throat> did a good job in talking about disclosures that are necessary for to help the space move forward in relation to centralized entities in particular. I think, you know, looking at capital requirements, looking at commingling of funds, et cetera, necessary. I think from a dis decentralized um, standpoint, 
you know, obviously cybersecurity is, as we talked about here, is, is paramount. But I think um, there's also a lot of the things that are done that are, you know, kind of the best disclosure regime you could possibly imagine right there on the blockchain, right? And so you can see where the money is, who has it, what the flows are like, transparency, fully auditable, updated in real time. Obviously, there is, um, you know, there is a gap between what we have on the blockchain and what we have for our regulatory regime, and there needs to be process done um, to figure out how we can, you know, create a solution that will actually work there. But I think a good step forward, I was, I was going to mention the Chris Romer paper as well, published last year for, you know, looking at disclosures in dApps and DeFi. You know, there's lots of creative ideas um, for figuring out how to bring some of that benefit from this decentralized technology so that consumers can use it. But I think any time where there is a black box where you kind of can't see where there are risks created by humans, which is what happens in any sort of centralized entity, crypto or not, you know, there must be adequate disclosures. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, so I'd like to pivot to the Senate side uh, real quick. We spent a lot of time on, on some of the things that the House is working on. Um, but on the Senate side, they seem to be more focused on addressing some of the potential illicit uses of crypto. Um, and, you know, the question kind of is, is it possible? How do we address those concerns, which have been raised on the bipartisan basis? Um, how do you address those concerns without uh, trampling on some of the very benefits that this technology seeks to provide, right? When it's enhancing financial privacy, peer-to-peer -peer transactions without relying on, on intermediaries. Um, Curious what you think about how we address those concerns to, to maybe move forward, uh, particularly in the Senate, where that seems to be such a focus. And Rashad, maybe we can start with you just to, to switch it up a little bit here. Sure. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think in my intro, I didn't really talk that much about my background before. But so I came from um, you know, basically seven years working on Capitol Hill in the Senate. And I think um, the folks who are uh, main players in this AML KYC discussion, you know, are are serious folks, you know, and they come across upon these issues, not necessarily just to crush crypto or something, but because they really are looking for good solutions to real problems. There are illicit finance issues in crypto as there are in the traditional financial system. And so, you know, maybe we can use this novel technology to hopefully create um, some safeguards or, you know, places where it's not, there are trade-offs are a critical part of any new technology, including blockchain-based ones. And so I think that it's going to be hard, I think I intimated earlier, for the Senate to move forward in, to some degree without addressing some of this, maybe not in a we're done forever comprehensive manner, but to, to some level. And, and so I think that, um, you know, with technology, it's always possible to build your values into a product. You know, even open source ones or decentralized ones, it is possible to screen for certain things, to do OFAC checks, et cetera. And so I think we need to look at the full range of possibilities for what can be done preemptively, proactively, you know, kind of setting up a system where these people cannot participate at all is not that easy. And I think one of the things we're seeing is that DeFi, crypto, et cetera, is coming up with these solutions. And so one of the issues here and why um, I talked about FIT has some consideration of, of DeFi within it, even though it's not perfect to allow us to do everything we want to do, um, it's critical that we have builders continue to build and create solutions. 
right, hear from and work with the regulatory community, figure out how we can use leverage technology to help us do some of these things we want to do. I, it's an, an interesting question here. I have lots of things racing through my head about, frankly, the, the digital finance writ large anyway. And what, what is everyone concerned about uh, with respect to illicit finance and, and in general, this pivot? Our financial infrastructure across the globe is still built to be incredibly slow. We may perceive that these you know, uh, transactions are happening immediately, but they are not. The trade, uh, you know, the, the process from institution to institution that actually ultimately settles and clears whatever you're doing, whether it is a trade or, or just even a, a money uh, transfer wire, those, those things actually take days. And so one of the things that is concerning to people about blockchain and crypto and, and what we're talking about here is moving to something that's instantaneous and irreversible. And so from that standpoint, as you think about it, um, just again from 100,000 feet, you say, okay, I can see why that would make sense from an efficiency standpoint and peer-to-peer -peer dynamics. But what about all those people who are seeking to do bad things they also can take advantage of that infrastructure that is instantaneous. And where is the opportunity for law enforcement or for intelligence uh, entities to actually intervene on that? And then you put on top of that, okay, these individuals don't have to identify themselves at all to anyone, and we really have no idea who they are. You know, so, so that's, I think, where um, particularly the national security space and those who are serious uh, senators that's, that's, I think, the dynamic they're responding to. I think there is an answer. We have an, an answer in this ecosystem because you're not actually um, uh, completely uh, avoid, avoid from uh, any kind of connection to an intermediary. Certainly you are off-ramping and on-ramping as the system exists today. But part of it is a concern about where is this all going and what does it look like and where are those opportunities to intervene. So I think it, from a macro standpoint, it is envisioning what this financial infrastructure of the future could look like and how you address those types of concerns. Um, and, and I think we're also up against uh, a lot of things that happened after September 11th. I was heavily involved uh, on 9-11. I was at the Department of Transportation. So the change in, in what has happened here, uh, I was, was heavily involved in. But we got from a point where you said, okay, my bank knows how much money I have and where it's sitting, and I'm okay with that. But everybody else doesn't know. And, and the government doesn't actually have full insight into everything that I'm doing at any particular point in time. You move forward to where we are with the digital uh, economy and, and payment systems and other things, that is not exactly the truth anymore in terms of how much insight government has, how much insight law enforcement has across the globe. And that's also something that crypto is reacting to and responding to is that concern. I think there are answers around identity and, and how we do KYC that can change. But, but it really is, I guess, that clash of kind of policy interests and concerns from a macro level that, that uh, perhaps is useful to think about. So I'll just add, uh, I guess, a couple of thoughts to overlay on that, right? If the, if, if, if the concern is, you know, you shouldn't be using a product because it can be used improperly, Right, then we've got a problem using the, you know, the U.S. dollars I have sitting in my wallet, right? Because I can hand those to anybody here, and they're very untraceable, 
right? So, you know, the illicit finance is, is going to be an issue. It will always be an issue no matter what product we use, what kind of system we set up. It is always something we're going to be dealing with. So I, I, I've never found that a convincing argument for why we shouldn't be, you know, engaging with a particular, you know, asset or currency or, or product. Um, the other thing I think is, you know, blockchain offers certain solutions that, you know, me handing my dollar bill to someone else doesn't. Uh, blockchains are immutable. Um, you know, I, I forget the name of the book, but I was reading a book about a month ago talking about how, you know, in the early days of blockchain, there was obviously a lot of illicit activity. And these people thought that their activity was completely anonymous. Nobody could catch him. So they went about and did their business. Well, technologically, we've been able to figure out and government agencies have been able to figure out, oh, Actually, this is an immutable record. I can go back to the very original Bitcoin transaction that happened over a decade ago and see everything that happened since then. Uh, and governments have gotten better and better at being able to use what's an intrinsic characteristic about the blockchain to address illicit finance in a way that I don't think we've been able to uh, with other types of systems before. Uh, again, you know, um, financial intermediaries that, that I'm used to dealing with on the CFTC side, you know, there are all of these, you know, auditing requirements and these record keeping requirements and uh, those can be a real pain. And, and there are times where companies, you know, something happens and, and you lose your data or you can't reconstruct uh, how certain trades happened. You know, blockchain at a high level uh, seems to offer a solution to those types of problems, right? And so I think it's, it's, it requires this understanding of, yes, here's this new technology. Here's what this new technology brings to the table. Here are these concerns that we have, right? And there, and there are ways to be creative and in developing the technology that we can address those situations. And I think that's, I think that's the type of approach that, that a lot of people are taking in the industry. And I think parts of the government are embracing that because, you know, when you have, uh, what was a colonial pipeline last year that got uh, ransomware and within a matter of days, I think most of the ransomware had been recovered, right? Because it was all traceable on the blockchain. And so I think it's, I think it's a matter of kind of understanding what the technology offers and how that technology can uh, interconnect with the principles that we hold as Americans and that we want to see you know, implemented in the in in the financial services space. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what was said. So I'll just add two quick points. Uh, I think first, um, I feel like I'm the person always correcting misassumptions about this industry. But um, you know, I want to point out that as Dan mentioned, illicit finance unfortunately occurs across all transactions and assets, not just crypto. And I think, um, well, I don't know exactly what the Senate leaders are thinking. You know, precisely on this topic, I want to point out that. Illicit finance use for crypto is not the predominant feature of crypto. Um, it's, it's, it's part of it, unfortunately, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to figure out what those solutions can be to stamp that out. But I just want to start out, start off with that. I think you know the U.S. and Kathy alluded to this earlier has long led when it comes to coming up with appropriate you know thoughts and guidance to stamp out illicit finance use. I think there's been studies done where the U.S. compared to other jurisdictions, and this is where the U.S. has led is that when it comes to crypto transactions being used for illicit purposes, it's on, it's like the very low single digit percentage wise. And I mentioned that because we have the FinCEN you know, guidance and rules from 2013 and 2019, which yes, I will admit, it is, it's more applicable to, let's say, centralized parties in the system, but it does require them to sort of you know, uh, be subject to a host of AML you know, and other requirements to stamp out illicit activity. So it's my way of saying that there's more room and growth to be had for sure. I think you know, if I could have it my way, there would be zero percent illicit use at all for crypto, but there's still a strong platform that we can build off of um, you know, to, to do so. The second thing, and Rashawn mentioned this as well as, as well as Dan, is 
It may seem obvious, but the importance of public-private collaboration and partnership, right? This is a new technology. This is a new asset class. And just like um, you know, the authors and the staffers of the, the Fit for 21st Century Act you know, reached out to pe people in the industry to get feedback, that's so important for this as well, right? What can we do to really harness the potential innovation of this technology to stamp out illicit you know, activity you know, usage-wise? Zero-knowledge proofs, digital ID. Like, what are other ways to protect privacy while also meeting you know, law enforcement objectives? Um, so those are just two more quick points that I want to add to everything else that people have said. Awesome, thank you. Uh, I want to make sure we get to the U.S. competitiveness piece because it does seem to be a motivating factor for a lot of members of Congress when they talk about the need for regulatory clarity, they talk about the risks of innovation being driven offshore. Um, so I'd love to hear your all's perspective on this um, as far as is this already happening? To what extent are folks already moving offshore? Um, how has the lack of clarity here impacted your business from an from uh, international standpoint? And uh, if not the U.S., where are you looking? Rashad, do you want to start again? Just sure. Yeah, so I think, um, as I've said, you know, a few times, you know, DYDX is an American, DYDX Trading is an American company, right? You have an American founder, I'm a U.S. citizen, pretty much everyone in our company is, we're based in the United States, et cetera, but we can't serve U.S. customers, right, because of the lack of, of clarity. So... I think on a very, very macro level, when you're looking at crypto and the technology, like all sorts of consumer-facing technology, they kind of don't really know what it can do until a lot of people are using it, right? Fundamentally, the creators of the basic internet protocols had no idea what the internet would be. All the innovation, the really intense innovation that we see every day, how we use these products, et cetera, how this is you know, beamed around the world come once the technology is in lots of people's hands. We're not going to be able to do that, or the people whose hands it's going to be in are not going to be Americans, right? And so if we keep this kind of um, uncertain space that we have now without clarity, we're just not going to see where the innovation goes. I think for now it's okay because we can, we can keep building and offering our products to lots of people around the world. That's great. But I think if we're going to be competitive and win in this space, the way that we have set the foundation for the financial system as it exists, for the internet as it exists today, you know, we're going to need to make sure that Americans are able to have their hands on this, to experiment with it, to um, develop new technology uses, businesses, et cetera. And so I think things are happening now, but... Um, we do run the risk of missing out on a lot of that innovation uh, as time goes on. I'd say I completely agree with Rashad, and it is uh, a bit of a, a slow bleed, if you will, uh, unfortunately. So uh, the, the dynamic of seeing where we are and where we could be, I mean, our U.S. markets are definitely the envy of the world. They still are, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. One is also the, you know, the, the infrastructure that we've talked a little bit about, too, that the U.S. and U.S. companies in public-private partnership and with a lot of private companies leading that globally are, are the underlying infrastructure of the global economy. And so that is something that we, for uh, national security interests, for U.S. competitiveness interests, would not want to lose. The U.S. dollar being, again, you know, really the, the reserve currency of the world. Uh, already you hear all kinds of conversations in 
many corners of the globe, which I know happened in, in the history. It's, it's happened. It happened in the 70s. It's happened a lot of time periods. Um, but generally speaking, the U.S. dollar was not challenged uh, in the way that people are talking about it now in foreign capitals. And so those are issues that, that should concern us. And again, not just financial infrastructure, but the technology infrastructure and communications infrastructure of the world, like you know, where, the, where the internet uh, was born and how it has evolved. So I think those, those are things that we do need to have uh, first and foremost in our minds. And, and it is definitely a motivating factor for members of Congress, which is exciting. And the entrepreneurs of the future. You know, we have a lot of challenges across the, uh, across the globe uh, to humanity here as we even look at dynamics around climate. We want those innovators to be here. We want those entrepreneurs to be here. And so it is really about how do we create an environment that you know, continues to have those people who are solving those problems um, you know, doing that in the U.S. And I, I think from uh, getting it a little more grounded again, what Solidus sees, again, we have clients all over the globe uh, in this ecosystem, looking again at regulated markets, um, that's, that's who wants a risk monitoring service, we'll be honest. It's not, it's not a fly-by-night operation that invests in the compliance apparatus that it requires. And so our clients, though, are, are largely uh, overseas. They're largely in jurisdictions where you have clear regulatory frameworks uh, in the UAE, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, and growing uh, dynamic in Europe with Mika's adoption. Um, so we, we definitely have much less interest in the U.S. At the same time, though, what Rashan said is true. You still have a lot of companies that are uh, at least, while their operations may be elsewhere, their headquarters is here. And so that's a dynamic that could change over time and one that needs to be watched. Yeah, so I would just say innovation breeds innovation, right? And so where, where the entrepreneurs are and where they, where they collect and where they, you know, have their breakthroughs is where they are going to tend to stay. Uh, and there is, there is, you know, encouragement for them to not be in the United States, which is not good for us. Um, you know, I look at things like artificial intelligence and quantum computing uh, and where that's going to be five and ten years down the road. And the type of people who are working on innovations in, in blockchain and digital assets are going to be the same groups of people who build into those, you know, emerging technologies. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's important to keep that innovation hub uh, in the United States. And, and we're definitely losing our grip on that. As far as kind of a, a boots on the ground perspective, um, you know, I gave my analogy at the start about, you know, being in London and hearing my, my London uh, colleagues talk about, you know, the EU. I'm on a lot of calls uh, with counsel from, you know, Singapore and, and Hong Kong and, and the Middle East because we have clients who are wrestling with these questions about, okay, here's this new product I want to do, or uh, my new business is hitting a pivot point. Where do I want to grow? Um, and a lot of them are choosing to divert resources outside of the United States. Uh, I have some clients who uh, don't do hiring in the U.S. anymore. Um, they are focused on hiring uh, outside the U.S. because of these regulatory problems that we're talking about. So, uh, you know, one thing, one thing I've, uh, I've told people is, you know, not acting is a choice. Um, this is not a, a static environment where we can just hold still. Uh, other, other countries are moving and, and companies are responding to their uh, you know, the, the regulatory regimes that they're offering because they 
can understand it and say, okay, here's how I get from point A to point B. And that's harder to do in the U.S. right now. So the, the sooner we can, you know, you know, pivot the ship uh, and getting to the point where I don't have to spend as much time sitting down with my client, walking through the securities commodity distinction, and instead focusing on them, okay, here's how you comply with these particular obligations that you have under this regime, I think the better it's going to be uh, for, for the U.S. Uh, competing in this area. Yeah, I agree with Dan completely. I think uh, the beauty of, of crypto and digital assets is that it really is cross-border. And I think, uh, you know, as Rashawn mentioned earlier, I think a lot of U.S.-based companies and founders want to stay here. They want to grow their market share here. They want to uh, innovate here in the U.S. But they are seeing a warm embrace from other jurisdictions, like the U.K., like EU and MECA, Hong Kong and Singapore and other areas. And they have a product, they have a service that they want to bring to market again in a safe and secure manner. And they will go where they get that embrace, but where they also get clarity. And some of these other regimes globally, they're not perfect. They're not simple. They're not easy. Hong Kong, for example, before you list a token, you have to provide liquidity measures, you know, the risk profile, the supply and demand, uh, the history. It's not meant to be easy. But for using Hong Kong as an example, we've seen 20 to 30 firms, I believe, you know, applying for a license there since Hong Kong announced that they are open for business, essentially. Now, it's been somewhat of a slow walk, but I know Hong Kong FinTech Week is coming up sometime in November. I expect there to be, you know, approvals then. And I think, you know, this asset class is so transformative. It can revolutionize financial services in a positive way, in a financial, financially inclusive way, that people will go abroad. Um, and as I mentioned at the outset of, of today's panel, uh, you know, I'm disappointed to say that U.S. has lagged behind. But I am an eternal optimist. I think while Mika is positive, you have, you know, clear comprehensive framework across 27 member states. And I don't think we, the U.S. will catch up in terms of, you know, proposing something or, you know, passing something in, in that time you still have to go through the implementation process in the EU, right? And you have 27 different member states who interpret some of these provisions differently. So there's an opportunity for the US, we might be a little behind now, but to eventually leapfrog if we embrace this innovation. Um, you know, if you, to go back to my example of semiconductors um, earlier on, the US ceded leadership and ownership there because other countries like China and Taiwan, they provided tax breaks and other benefits, and they wanted this innovation to occur in their region, not in the US. And, I, and it'd be great to like avoid that. And I think, um, you know, even with the UK as an example, because you asked about other global regimes, the UK has been very positive and forward thinking when it comes to digital assets. Uh, but they're sort of taking a uh, you know, cradle to a grave process, if that makes sense. They're, you know, saying, hey, we're open for business. We want to learn more about this innovation in the industry. Uh, but they, right now, if you are a registered firm in the UK, you have to register with the FCA for AML purposes. Now, you know, next month, financial uh, marketing promotion rules will come into effect. Eventually, it will be payment stable coins, and then other types of stable coins. So it's a, they're doing a piecemeal fashion is the point that I'm trying to make. And with the U.S., with the advancement and the progress of the Fit for 21st Century Act, hopefully we'll go to a House floor vote. Hopefully we'll get to the Senate as well. Uh, there's an opportunity for U.S. not to see leadership and ownership. And as Americans, I think that's a very important thing that we should keep in mind to embrace this innovation, to learn about this innovation, and keep that onshore here in the United States. Awesome. I like ending that with a little bit of optimism there. Yep. Um, at this point, we're going to turn to audience questions. So just as a quick reminder to folks who are tuning in online, you can submit questions online. We've already got a few that have come in. Um, and if you're submitting them uh, through Twitter or Facebook, remember to use the hashtag CatoEcon. Um, and then if you are in, in the audience, we just ask that you uh, state your name and affiliation before asking your question and uh, speak clearly into the mic. All right, so. uh, yes, my name is Roger Kocher. And I'm an editorial contributor on technology policy to the Hill newspaper. And 
uh, I want to thank the panel for very useful conversation about this, and, and in particular, the global or international dimensions, which I've done a little bit of research on. But one of the things I'd, I'd ask panelists to, if they could talk about, is um, central bank digital currencies and the movement towards central bank digital currencies. And I have sort of multiple sub-questions on that. First, how, how do you see, from a marketplace point of view, central bank digital currencies coexisting with a private sector decentralized uh, uh, systems of the sort that you've been discussing today? And secondly, how do you respond to the government officials who often articulate two propositions that, that, that I'm sure you deal with all the time. One is that currency should be the monopoly of governments. We don't allow, you know, like nuclear weapons, only governments should be able to issue currencies and digital, central bank digital currencies are the only ones that should be allowed. The second is that, oh my goodness, here's another technology which the Americans are about to dominate and control the world. We want to do some anything to prevent the United States from dominating another internet, uh, like an, an, an American pushback question. So how does the market between central bank digital currencies and your market break out? And how do you respond or uh, deal with those types of, of typically government official um, propositions? Thank you. I was going to say, I think with respect to the CBDC conversations across the globe, they really differ quite a bit. It's what problem are they trying to solve exactly? It somewhat does link to your last point, because I think there are many of them that have in the back of their minds this reaction to the United States and, and, um, and the dollar and, and concerns about that. But just taking the first question, I think it, it really is... Um, a different question in different locations. You look at the Caribbean where they have such so many challenges to just regular banking access. There are no branches out in the islands of the Bahamas that are all their scattered islands. And so they'll spend a whole day to get to Nassau to get to the bank. That was the motivation for, you know, their launching of their pilot. Very interesting, also remaining very challenging because you know, part of this also gets to you can't overcome the challenges to your own currency and and how, uh, you know, stable your own currency. And not, not speaking about the Bahamas specifically, but you can't overcome those things uh, just by turning it into a CBDC. So so that's uh, at least one uh, example and, and a dynamic there with with that. I think the thing in the U.S. and and some of the more established economies is how you embed your democratic values and principles into those CBDCs, uh, obviously very different from what China is doing. And I think particularly here, the retail versus wholesale, you know, what is the CBDC for? And I, I, I mean, my personal views on this is that the U.S. should not pursue a retail CBDC for precisely the issue you're noting. How does that, how does that actually interact with what the private sector is good at and what we have typically relied on the private sector to do in this country. So I think there are just, again, some interesting questions you're raising on, on where this all comes together that differs depending on which country you're looking at. Um, so another question we have from the audience here uh, touches on the international piece. 
says, we've been hearing that we're falling behind. Other countries are moving first. But are they doing regulation the right way? What's the balance between being first and being right here? I'm, I'm happy to share my thoughts. Um, it's a really good question. I'm, I'm not sure if I would look at it as are they doing it right or better necessarily. I do think, as I mentioned, uh, clarity is extremely important. And I think, you know, we talked about a lot of different regimes here today. Um, Mika, Hong Kong, Singapore. Personally, I have a lot of things that I would, you know, that, that I don't love about each of these regimes. But I think the fact that they are first movers, that they have, again, mentioned that they are looking to embrace and welcome this innovation, that they have provided clear rules of the road, whether or not the industry loves them or not, that's a positive step. And I think, you know, all of these different regimes are sort of grappling with different topics and issues and concepts. The, the Hong Kong uh, reference that I mentioned earlier, they spent a lot of time on, you know, what are the asset disclosures, you know, what information do customers want over there, should they have? And as I mentioned, liquidity, you know, supply and demand, you know, governance, other things, you know, they're required to provide that before listing an asset. It's an asset criteria. Um, so, you know, I, I think that just the fact that other jurisdictions have moved is, is positive. Um, and I also want to highlight that the the benefits of moving first or having a framework is that it actually helps consumers. You know, if you use Mika as an example, if, if, um, if a crypto asset service provider does something wrong with its customers' assets, it will allow the regulator to bring an enforcement action more clearly and concretely than when there's a lack of certainty here. We talked a lot about today, or we touched upon at least, sort of the SEC's regulation by enforcement approach. It gets caught up in litigation. I'm a pointy-headed lawyer myself, but that's expensive. It costs a lot of time and resources, and it doesn't help the industry at large. But when you have clear rules of the road, clear expectations of what a service provider or token insurer needs to do, it actually helps customers, because you can hold them to the standard. And one of the advantages of being a first mover is that you, you help to set the terms of the debate. Um, that's what happened in the U.S. post Dodd-Frank with the swap-based reforms. The U.S. regulators moved quickly, uh, got a lot of rules out there uh, and, and, you know, policies and procedures and best practices. And it really significantly influenced the way the international community decided to regulate the swaps market. Uh, and it's the same type of dynamic here. No, no regulatory regime is going to be perfect. You can point to a flaw in, in every regime, and even our, you know, our, our longstanding, you know, securities and and banking regulations. You know, there are problems with all of it, right? But there are things on there that people can understand and can try to comply with, and that you're engaging in that dialogue with the regulator to, to hone things out. And you're putting a regime out there, and you're seeing what works about it and what it doesn't. Uh, again, back to Dodd Frank, a lot of the regulators are now you know, 10 years out where some of those regulatory regimes were put in place, now the regulators are going back and saying, okay, well, we tried this. Here's what worked about it. Here's what didn't work about it. There's no way we really could have known that when we passed it at the first point. And we had to get it out there so we could kind of see how it works. Now that we've got this real world experience, here's where we need to, you know, make tweaks or some cases make some dramatic changes. But you don't get that data unless you get a regime in place that the industry can, can react to and integrate with and try to operate in. And so, you know, having that regime, uh, I think, just brings, brings enormous advantages. Paul? Thank you. I'm Paul Brigner. I'm head of policy at Electric Coin Company. We're the developers of Zcash, the cryptocurrency. Um, I had a chance to talk to Rashawn and his CEO not too long ago, and one of the things that really shocked me after that conversation was what I learned um, is how much of the activity in the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem and, and in DeFi is 
not happening in the U.S. And you've, you've all said this, but I think what really struck me was when some of the numbers were discussed, like really quantifying how much of the activity is not happening here in the U.S. And it made me have a sense of what we're missing out on, and we don't even realize it, because it's the thing about an innovator's dilemma, right? Is like, you're not experiencing it, you don't see it, it's not, you don't see it coming because it's happening elsewhere and suddenly you're left behind. And I just wondered if some of you might be able to talk about that and just try to put some quantification around what we're missing out on. Uh, and I have to say, I'm a huge fan of what DYDX is doing. I think from what I learned in that conversation, um, it's really groundbreaking. I mean, it is truly just an incredibly new innovative model that has such amazing potential for our financial ecosystem. I'm so excited about it. So I would love for them to be able to be offering their services in the US. Yeah, well, Paul, great to see you. Um, thanks for coming and then bringing up your point. I think, you know, I won't talk too much about all the specific numbers because one, any of you can go online and audit them yourself. So you can kind of see how things are progressing, like how many people are, are using, how many people are transacting, how much value you know, denominated in US dollars or Ethereum or whatever is flowing through the protocol any given day. But you know, for example, recently something like a billion dollars worth of value is flowing through DYDX protocol on a daily basis. And that's with you know, a market that's you know, down as compared to you know, what it was, say, a year ago. So things change um, quickly, and as I mentioned today, you know, um, you know, version four of the protocol is coming out um, imminently, sometime later this month or, or next month, and it's going to be, um, I think, as, as Paul was intimating, you know, something really cool and special that I think builders are going to be really excited about, and that customers around the world are going to be really excited about for sure. Um, but yeah, it's just not going to be available here. And even though people are working on these products here, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, just we just don't know what the innovative possibilities are until you know billions of people are using these solutions, and and you know, the United States are just the kids in high school and et cetera aren't going to be. Kathy, this one's directed to you. For Kathy, as a former regulator, can you offer a best case and worst case for why the government is dragging its feet here? <laughs> uh, I, the best case is, uh, from, from my vantage point, and there are definitely people who fall in this camp, that they are concerned about, you know, it's, it's the risk aversion that is natural, I suppose, in, in government agencies. And that's why Congress has a role to step in here. But, but that is it. It's, it's not understanding and not knowing and not having clear direction about what the jurisdiction is and the path forward. So I guess that's, that's best case scenario. I'll, I'll call it risk aversion. Um, worst case scenario, and, and it's maybe the other side of the coin too, and you can see where my bias comes in because I'm just going to end with Congress has to act. Uh, it's the notion that um, the agencies are really just able to take it into their own hands and you know, they, they can decide, uh, in fact, that the government is actually at play here as, as the hand behind the markets. And that's not the way this is supposed to work. Uh, so I think that's uh, perhaps my, my perspective on it. Thank you. Well, thank you all so much. I know I learned a lot here. I hope you all did too. Um, 
really enjoyed it. Right now we're going to take a 45-minute lunch break, so enjoy lunch, and then we'll come back here at 1.45 p.m. Um, for remarks by Carolyn Pham, Commissioner of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, and after that, there'll be uh, another panel on regulating open source financial technology, moderated by Nikki Kristoff of Kristoff & Co. So hope to see you guys all and talk with you all at lunch and um, after the panels today. Thanks.